90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty good. Just got back from a successful sampling trip to Nevada. Um, the weather there ranged from 90 degrees to 35. So it was super <laughs> <Wow>. exciting. <laughs> Uh, yeah, my uh, students were not prepared. Nobody brought jackets or anything, and it snowed three inches on us, so um, it was a good time. Well, I remember, I mean, we may have to, to pull this back from many episodes ago, you know, you saying and me bringing it back in this echoey voice of, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing. <laughs> exactly. Um, I certainly probably said that a couple of times this weekend as well. <laughs> yeah. Ma- mainly as everyone was complaining that I was making them work in three inches of snow. Um, how's your week been? Oh, it's been pretty good. I'm working on preparing for a programming certification test, so that's always fun. Uh, and and I've been trying to keep up with all this listener feedback that we've been getting. It's great. Uh, it is. It means that at least three people are listening so far, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so we have... A lot of feedback, and I'm going to post relevant links from it in the show notes. Uh, one of them is from former guest of the show, Dr. Chuck Amon, and he pointed us to John Clairbout, who has written uh, several geophysical books. Uh, he has this article on his webpage about reproducible computational research, and it talks about the the way that they tried to develop this and the problems they had. This is all the way back into the the mid-70s, and really saying that reproducible research is not a new idea, and it's hard to implement then. It's still hard to implement now, but we're getting better at it. Uh, One of the more interesting things on this page was he had written an article in this reproducible way that they had devised all these scripts uh, and submitted it to a journal. It was before Computers in Science and Engineering. It was called Computers in Physics. Mm-hmm. And the editor rejected it and said, if everyone used Microsoft software, reproducibility would be trivial. <laughs> and <laughs> well, so then after that journal went bankrupt, uh, it became computers in science and engineering. And years later, they wanted to publish this paper that he had submitted and that computers and physics had rejected. And they said, well, we need this one figure at a higher resolution now. And he went back to run those scripts to reproduce the paper. And he had to embarrassingly say, I I can't reproduce it because compilers and technology was evolving so fast at that time. He actually just just years later couldn't reproduce the exact same thing. Wow. In a paper about reproducibility. Yeah. And I mean, that is a problem still. That's something that we should talk about more in the future that... Mm -hmm. I don't know that you can guarantee that any program that you write is going to run in 20 years. You just have to do your best to document it, I think. Mm-hmm. Unless you're a paleo mag program, and that's been going for quite some time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and the other thing that he pointed out was that reproducible doesn't necessarily mean that it's correct. So somebody has to right. carefully check it or completely independently try to come to the same answer. So the, the tools that we have are making it easier to do that, but we're still not there yet. We've got a long way to go. I thought that right. was a really good and insightful comment. And this article is great. I'll link it in the, the notes. Uh, yes, it's definitely worth um, checking out on there. Um, but Chuck wasn't the only one that wrote to us, right? 
No, we also heard, uh, I had a, a conversation actually in a, a Slack chat room with one of our listeners, Martin, and he was listening to our uh, episode 63 about doing things with your hands. And that's one that Katie talked about last week as well. And he said, do we think that programming is making in the sense that we were talking about? Because it does a lot of the things that we we said, and it especially has troubleshooting in it. Mm-hmm. Yep. So what I, do you think? Um, you know, after reading your response, which you're going to get to, I sort of agree with it. Um, but I think what you kind of highlighted is that it needs some application to the physical world to be making. It is making, but it is still in the cerebral realm, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, writing writing a piece of software, you do check most of the boxes that we talked about. But if you do something like interface it with an Arduino or a Raspberry Pi or do something in the physical world with it, uh, you know, manipulate a servo or a motor or make lights blink or read buttons, then then you're actually working with your hands and the software. So you get to double check almost all the boxes <laughs> then. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think that that was a really good point and that programming does fit a lot of those things that we talked about. Uh, but I think you can extend it even further. Right. I, I think that's the caveat to me saying that that is making because it is certainly very uh, fulfilling to compile something. I mean, with my limited programming experience and have it work correctly. <laughs> I think that's a a great, satisfying feeling. But actually seeing what you programmed, like run a motor or do something physical, I think is probably even more rewarding. Yes. And uh, also we had uh, some feedback on audio issues in our shows, uh, namely uh, your laugh. Yeah. (laughs) Why would you want to stifle my laugh, man? That's, That's painful. I mean... Well, I guess so, I understand, but it made me sad. <laughs> well, I I do apologize because a lot of this is my fault for not being incredibly familiar with all the audio editing uh, tricks and techniques. So it wasn't so much that your your laugh is loud; it's just that it made the rest of you talking very soft. So <laughs> well, well, it's definitely loud. Let's not <laughs> let's not excuse that. <laughs> so I've been trying to learn how to use uh, audio compressors. And so we've been we've been experimenting with that. So let us know if you think that the show sounds a little bit better balanced now. Uh, see, John, I'm just going to let you learn how to do all of that stuff, and then maybe I'll help you edit shows <laughs> together. <laughs> um, I did read that article about compressibility, though. Um, <laughs> but finally, um, we got an email from listener Andrew, and I thought this was great because he's one of our listeners that took our advice on one of our book reviews when we talked about the map that changed the world. Um, and he was talking about how, you know, William Smith's life was really rough, but that it was really great that he gained recognition that wasn't posthumous because so often that's what happens in the science sciences. And so that's a neat thing that comes out of that book. Um, but also because we've been talking about so much geology stuff sort of in our back-to-basics type shows. He said that his godfather is a geologist, and now he has words that he can throw at him to start up conversations like Brunton and Strike and Dip, um, thanks to our podcast. So that was a really great <laughs> a really great thing that Andrew sent to us, I thought. Yeah, and I think the, uh, the alphabet show was probably... <laughs> Uh, really useful for doing that as well. Uh, yeah, I foresee many of those in the future. I think I've gotten a lot of just face-to-face feedback about how much people 
enjoyed that and why didn't we use this this geology word or that geology word and so I think we can probably revisit that on several occasions. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely been some, but you missed my favorite word. Exactly. It's X. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, lots of that for sure. Well, I think we should just, uh, the next geology or the next ABC show that we do should be like ABCs of entomology or something really weird that no one could call us on, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unless you know some entomologist, I don't, but... <laughs> no. But... Well, anyway. so that's that's a ton of feedback, and it's great. So keep it coming. We really enjoy hearing from you and on how we can make the show better or things that you want to hear us talk about. Exactly. Um, so this week, I tried to cater to you and figured that we could talk about something you like to talk a lot about, and that is you- breaking rocks. <laughs> Yeah, and the show notes for this are really long, and because we've been very talkative this month, we're getting close <laughs> to our our upload limit for the month, so we might have to break this down into a couple shows. We'll see how it goes. Uh, was that a geology pun there? Break it down? Uh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> okay, just making sure. Um, I figured that I could uh, start us off with some things that I know something about, which is some you know really cool flatline rocks. <laughs> And I've uh, included uh, some links to um, the the national parks that highlight some of these really cool flatline rocks, it being the 100 years of the National Park Service this year. Um, But those get us excited, but we get really excited when we see really cool folds and faults. And we saw a bunch of them in Nevada this weekend. We got really excited about them. I was going to say, you might get excited by the flatline rocks, but (laughs) I think they're pretty... You know, not all that interesting. Hey, hey, Uh. they're pretty. Um, (laughs) So this goes back to one of the first things that we teach in intro is that rocks are deposited flat. Like, that's how they get there. Well, sedimentary rocks, right? Um, And it's one of those basic assumptions that we make. Um, Nicholas Steno, the father of stratigraphy, or the father of the ridiculous amount of jargon that is the science of stratigraphy, (laughs) Right. called this uh, the law of original horizontality. Which is not a law. Yeah. <laughs> but it's what we it, say is a law. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> I mean, it's just like uniformitarianism. You know, it's it's something that is generally true, but not always. Um, but Right. And also the idea is that you get sediments falling down through whatever process they're being deposited through. And because gravity... You get these nice flat-laying layers, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And so they start out flat, but they don't always stay flat. But it's always sort of the initial condition assumption that we make when we're talking about um, rocks that get deposited. Right. And then the question, obviously, that people were asking is, how do the rocks get folded or faulted? Right, exactly. And what's the difference? Like, why do some rocks bend? Why do some rocks break? Is it... A rock property is it a tectonic property and then what happens when they become not flat line um so that's what we're going to start to talk about today which could be probably 12 shows i'm guessing (laughs) (laughs) yeah so the first thing is where's the energy for this coming from and this ties in nicely to a few shows back because it's plate tectonics to the rescue always the answer right (laughs) (laughs) any of my students listening just write plate tectonics on the final next week you know you're going to get it right (laughs) 
<laughs> it's plate tectonics or the sun. Those are generally the answers. To yeah, that's a lot absolutely of our true. Problems. Yeah, absolutely true. Um, so plates move, and they move in sort of three different ways, right? Together, apart, and sliding past each other. Yes, or if you're a right mechanicist, you would say that they are creating tensional forces when they're <laughs> stretching or pulling apart, compressive forces as they're squeezing together, trying to shorten at convergent boundaries, like a subduction zone, or shearing forces as they slide past each other, like at transform boundaries. So you can think this like tension, compression, and shearing on a spring, right? Right, exactly. So pushing, pulling, or sliding past. <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, but you've said a few words already, and that this is a really important point to make. So you've used the word stress, and then we also talk about strain. And I want to emphasize at this very beginning, stress and strain are not the same thing, although they are frequently used interchangeably. Yes. And if you do this around a structural geologist, a seismologist, an earthquake mechanicist, anybody like that... Uh, they are actually legally obligated to come and smack you. <laughs> uh, so funny story at our field camp, one of our students, or no, one of our students, this is when I took field camp. So one of my cohorts said to the structural geologist, she said, stress, strain, what's the difference? Does it even matter? <laughs> at which point <laughs> he took off his hat, stomped on it and counted to 10. <laughs> <laughs> And ever since then, I learned the difference and have never made that mistake. Yes. I mean, it wasn't me that said it, I swear. <laughs> but, but so these aren't the same thing. So stress, what are we talking about? So stress in units is a force per unit area. So in the science world, we would call this um, megapascals. So it's basically, uh, well, a pascal is one newton per square meter. Right. So one newton of force, 0.1 kilograms sitting under gravitational acceleration produces a force of one newton. And if you were to set that on something, a square meter, the force on that area would be a pascal. It's not much. Right. So we, then we go to megapascals, which is 10 to the sixth or a million pascals. So uh, when we're talking about rocks, that's more relevant. Exactly. So stress is how hard you're pushing on something normalized by the area. You can think of it like that. So now when you say force per unit area, I'm used to saying pressure. No. <laughs> I know. Th th <laughs> this is where I'm going to stomp my head. Uh, so <laughs> uh, stress and pressure are different. They have the same units. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about... Uh, pressure in megapascals, or if you're more familiar with the empirical units, pounds per square inch. Don't even uh, go there. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, tires are 30-some oh, um, okay. PSI. Right. That's yeah. true. Okay. So pressure is exerted in all directions, right? So okay. if you have gas pressure or fluid pressure, it's pushing out in all directions on whatever it's contained in. Okay. Stress can exert attraction on a surface. So if you put a block uh, into a pressure vessel and pressurize it, there aren't any tractions or any forces uh, trying to move the block, right? Right. Well, maybe it's going to compress if you put it under really high pressure, but different. <laughs> we'll get so, there later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but a stress, actually, say I have a cube of rock and I exert stress in one direction, I can actually 
cause what they call attraction that wants to move the rock along a fault plane that's at some orientation in the block. Right. So I don't know. Does that make does that make a lot of sense? I mean, it does. It's. I still feel like you know. I always said pressure is force per unit area, and I feel like doing meteorology, you always just you know p equals f over a, right? So having True. to think about it differently is actually quite interesting. <laughs> well, so think about it like this: if you, th- there'll be some listeners that are familiar with the stress tensor, right? So think about what the stress tensor would look like if you're dealing with a pressure and Mm -hmm. the difference will become a lot more apparent. Right. Yeah, exactly. But that is some pretty high level calculus. So I think we should move (laughs) on. Uh, Okay, fine. Great. So we've got (laughs) difference between stress and pressure. um, And you've got this tractional force because that's what rocks do when you exert a stress, right? Right. And so the reason that we don't just talk about force Mm-hmm. is because the area makes a big difference. So if you think about the same force on a small area, that's a high stress versus if you put it on a large area. Right. So think mm-hmm. about setting a cinder block on your hand on mm-hmm. its side. Well, that's going to exert some uh, force on your hand, the force of the block being accelerated by gravity. Mm-hmm. And the stress will be lower than if you put the cinder, cinder block on your hand, on its corner, the force is still the same, but the area of contact is much less, so you feel a much greater stress on your hand. Right. That's an excellent way to describe it. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is <laughs> this is how snowshoes work, or not work, as the case may be, when I found out <laughs> trying to use snowshoes this year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you really got to spread that out, uh, <laughs> or else it doesn't doesn't work very well. Right. But strain is something totally different, right? Yes, exactly. So I always try to tell students, you know, stress is the force that you're exerting, but strain is actually what happens to the rock. So you don't, you apply a stress and you create a strain. And it has to do with what you can measure if you're stretching or compressing something. Right. And I know a lot of people say, well, why don't you say that it just got a millimeter shorter? Well, how does that adequately describe what it was before? Yeah. So if the piece of rock that you were compressing was two millimeters long to start with, that's a huge change. Right. But if the piece of rock was 100 kilometers long and you shortened it by a millimeter, no big deal. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is where strain is important. It's the fractional change in length. So it's the change in length divided by the original length of what you were pushing on. So this is also one of those things that you have to stress over and over again, right? It's how you changed it versus how big it was, which makes it unitless. It cancels out. Everyone has problems with this. (laughs) Yes, strain is unitless. It's a trick question. Uh, (laughs) Yes, (laughs) exactly. Because it's Um, a length over a length. Think about it like this. If you have something that's a meter long, and you strain it by 1%, that's going to be a lot more displacement than if you have something that is a centimeter long and you strain it by 1%. Right. So this fractional change, it's like its like a fractional scale on a topo map, which is also unitless, which is very hard to understand. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So anything that does that um, is difficult to wrap your mind around, but exactly like you just said, 
that percentage right. on a large area is much different than the percentage change on a small area. But it's has to do with how much stress has the rock has been exposed to. Right. And that goes into elastic modulus and all kinds of fun stuff that <laughs> are another show. But <laughs> the cool thing is in the mid 20th century, geologists borrowed some hydraulic presses from the engineers and they stuck marble in it. Okay. And they could apply a confining load. So they w- could apply uh, stress in all directions around the cylinder of marble by pressurizing an oil. So there you can already see some stress pressure differences um but by pressurizing soil and then they would press on the axis uh, along the axis of the cylinder and see what happened if the confining pressure was low or if you just put the cylinder out in you know the room air and pressed on the end eventually it would go bang and it would fracture and so we would call that brittle failure and it represents faulting when we get cracking and sliding on this fracture of rocks Okay, but I'm guessing that there was something else besides brittle behavior that happened, too. Yeah, what got interesting was, with marble, when they increased the confining load, and then they applied axial stress, the sample just deformed, and it got a lot shorter, and it started barreling out at the center. In fact, it looked like a barrel when they pulled it out of the machine. It didn't fracture. It just flowed into this kind of squatty, round-in-the-middle shape. So the different sort of conditions of this marble had to do with whether it brittily deformed, which would be faulting, or ductily deformed, which would be all kinds of cool folding. Yeah. And there are other things that could influence this too. Like by increasing the temperature, they could change this transition point to a lower confining pressure. Uh, The other thing was the rate of deformation. So what we call the strain rate. how fast you're deforming the material if you deform it really fast it fractures and cracks whereas with a lot of materials if you deform them more slowly under the same conditions they can flow and deform ductily right as you're thinking about this you can see from this experiment that strain is something that stays with the rock once the stress is gone Uh, not necessarily. Oh, no. Yeah. So there is elastic and inelastic strain. Elastic strain is like stretching a spring. It's, it's perfectly recoverable. Right, right. But there are inelastic strains, like when you get this deformation, uh, with the ductile behavior. Now you can think of this as playing with silly putty. If you haven't done this in oil, go grab some. And if you make a ball of it and sit it with part of it off of your desk, and part of it on your desk and leave it for a while, you'll come back and you'll see that it's flowed. Right. So the part that's hanging off your desk will flow down. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you take that same material, you know, make a little tube of it or whatever, something you can hold on to, and you pull it apart, rip it apart really fast, Mm -hmm. it actually snaps brittily. Right. If you pull it apart very slowly, it'll get long and stringy. So that's a good example of how strain rate can change the behavior of the material, and rocks do the same thing. Uh, also, how temperature would affect it as well. Yeah. Well, I don't know. How, how was temperature rolled into that? Well, you know, if you've got hot, silly putty, and you try yeah. to pull it apart quickly, it's going to stretch as opposed to break. Yeah, I guess you could heat up your silly putty, put it under a... Not in your oven. Uh, <laughs> <No>. but <laughs> I'm just thinking, you know, if you roll silly putty long enough, it gets kind of uh, yeah. warm and more ductile. 
And so uh, Mervyn Patterson literally wrote the book on this kind of thing, if you're interested. <laughs> uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. But that uh, is a good way to get into the brittle ductal transition in the earth. Uh, so both of these deformation styles happen to rocks. You can break them or you can squeeze them elastically and they deform. But that has to do with where you're at in the crust, right? Yeah. So as you go down in the crust, uh, the strength actually goes up of the rock. Okay. And you're getting hotter. And you are getting hotter mm -hmm. at, at what, about uh, 25 degrees per kilometer, something like that? That is exactly right. <laughs> yeah. So you're getting hotter. And then suddenly, after the strength is going up, it starts going back down. It goes up linearly and it goes down in kind of this exponential decaying fashion. Okay. Why is that? Well, that is the brittle ductal transition. That is the pressure and temperature condition at which the rock starts behaving ductally and becomes weaker. It starts to flow. That's like the most usefully named geophysical parameter I've ever heard. What, the brittle ductal transition? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. You know exactly what it uh, is just from the name. <laughs> Not Mohorovic discontinuity or anything like that. <laughs> right. Uh, and so... I mean, of course, its depth varies depending on rock type and geothermal gradient. There are some places where it's very shallow. There are some places where it's very deep. But a good global average, a number that you should keep in your pocket, is about 15 kilometers, which for those of you that think in uh, imperial units again, that's <laughs> about 9.3 miles. Uh, and that's, uh, that's not too warm, right? Uh, 375C or so? Uh, until you say that that's 700 Fahrenheit. Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, so it's the we, temperature of a soldering iron. It, it's hot. Uh, but speak, in terms of rocks, you know. Yeah, in, in terms of, you know, like a lava or... Right, yeah. <laughs> rocks like, melted you know. about 800 to, you know, 1200 degrees C, so... Yeah. Not, e not anywhere close to melting temperature of these rocks, so that's something worth noting as well. No, but it is hot enough that they begin to flow, which is mm -hmm. interesting. Right, exactly. And... That makes the cool folds that are so pretty. Yes. Folds <laughs> are one of my favorite geologic features. I think I am required to say that my favorite is faults, uh, <laughs> based on what I work on. But folds are a close second. Uh, yeah, there's really nothing that um, can compare. And it's something that, you know, catches everybody's eye, right? I mean, you don't notice. Just like you said before, sometimes you don't notice boring flatline rocks. But when you have a nice road cut that's got a cool anticline or syncline in it, you nearly always hear someone non-geology related pointed out. Yeah. I mean, what was it they say that uh, a good geologist can't be a good driver or something like that? Because <laughs> you're always um, looking at the, at the outcrop, not the road. <laughs> we might have had a few instances like that this weekend in the field. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so now me getting corrected by this whole elastic, inelastic business, I do want to ask you, what does scale have to do with it? Because I know you work you know, just like you said, you're obligated to say faults are your favorite because that's what you work <laughs> on. But you work on them on a micro scale. You know, how does this translate to large scale stuff that people would see driving down the road? So have you reviewed one of my papers? Because uh, <laughs> th this is a typical reviewer comment. Uh, <laughs> I am reviewer number three. <laughs> yeah. No, so scale is something that we have a big challenge with in the lab because we can't produce not only the size scale, but the time scale of these things. Uh, right. I mean, it's our, geologically our deformation, impossible. 
<laughs> well, yeah. I mean, our deformation experiments can last really long ones, weeks to months. And that's if you're really patient. Uh, <laughs> and the machine doesn't break and the power doesn't go out and all kinds of things don't happen. It's, <laughs> it's pretty hard to even get something that slow. We can go at plate tectonic rates for a few months if we have right. to. But the scaling is a good question. There's a lot of evidence that most of these processes are self-similar or fractal in nature. Okay. So they look the same no matter how far you zoom in or zoom out. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, a natural, a hand sample is going to have some, some fracturing in it, right? Some cracking. Mm-hmm. But if you zoom out even further and look at the outcrop scale, well, there's going to be cracking at that scale too. Right. And yep, if you look exactly. at a regional scale, there's jointing at that scale too. Mm-hmm. Uh and so, you could probably look at grain size and see fractures within the grains as well, which exactly. is like centimeter to nanometer scale. And then eventually you get down to atomic scale. Right. So <laughs> the idea is, well, we hope things scale pretty well. And it looks like they do mostly. There are some cases where they don't. Uh, but we can make these pretty simple, like with layers of rubber and uh, foam rubber and that kind of thing, we can make simple models of flat-lying strata and just physically compress them in the lab and make folds. Which I bet is really fun to do, right? (laughs) Yeah. So all you're trying to do is simulate rocks with different elastic properties. Mm -hmm. And you can make, there are many different kinds of folds that I think we should do a show on, actually. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, right. And then you get stuff called, you know, chevron folds, which have some amount of breakage in them and stuff like that, too. Concentric so, folds, and yeah. Yeah, there's uh, a whole lot of... Uh, <laughs> but there's a whole... These, these go hand in hand as well, right? I mean, folds and faults, really. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you could commonly see both in the same area. Yeah, uh, there's a nice uh, sort of rule of thumb for field geology, which is, you know, don't fault, don't fault something if you can fold it. <laughs> so <laughs> that's sort of one of those things that I don't know if I'm 100% on board with yet. But um, uh, yeah. yeah, it's just a, something that gets tossed out there. Yeah. But well, so one thing that folds and faults, you'd ask about scale. And I gave the answer from going to from lab to the field. But mm-hmm. in the field, even. You observe folds and faults that are centimeters and kilometers. Oh, absolutely. So so you can look at an aerial photo and see uh, very heavily folded regions, and then you can go to the outcrop and see these little tiny folds (laughs) in individual layers. Exactly. Um, I will say from my field geology days as an undergrad, I still have this piece of rock that is the fold axis that I took from the inside of this anticline and you know the anticline was huge but i got down to the scale where this little perfect folded anticline rock is you know less than the length of my hand so you know it's like five centimeters or something all the way across yeah well and i really like finding uh rocks that have you know like a vein in them that is offset by millimeters to a centimeter yeah because it's a little tiny earthquake uh, yes, those are those are the best. My kid is super obsessed with those little veined offsetting uh, rocks that he finds in stream beds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we've really just scratched the surface about things like brittle ductile transition. We didn't really talk about elastic and inelastic deformation that much or what elastic or elastic modulus really means or 
any details of folding or faulting, though we've covered <laughs> some of that in past shows. But I think this is a really good overview, and there's still a lot to digest here about stress and strain relationships and the fact that rocks can just bend. Exactly. I mean, I don't want to tell our listeners that they have homework, but I think that <laughs> this is one of those things that you really need to spend some time thinking about stress versus strain because it's something that isn't quite intuitive if it's not something you talk about on a daily basis like we do. And so the whole stresses causing strain and how you can do something like bend a rock because it's a rock, right? (laughs) Um, But not all of them do bend. And so that's what sort of just is an intro to how they start to happen. And I'm sure we'll have many more shows about actually bending rocks because it's kind of mind-blowing to think about. Uh, Yes, absolutely. And this is really where geology and material science meet. Uh, Yes. I think, and I've been listening to an audiobook uh, that I would like to recommend. I'm not through it yet, but so far I am thoroughly enjoying it. Uh, Hopefully it'll be through later this week. It's called Stuff Matters. Mm -hmm. And it is entirely about uh, material science. And it's, well, the subtitle is Exploring the Marvelous Materials that Shape Our Man-Made World. Ah, okay. And so talk a lot about a lot of things about, well, why does steel get harder the more you work it? <laughs> and what actually happens when you bend steel? How can a steel razor blade cut you, but uh, a steel paper clip be so bendy? Why is glass clear? <laughs> why does it have the properties that it does? Um, um, that's really interesting. My husband and I had this conversation about steel on our last road trip and talked about it for quite some time. <laughs> So yeah, that's, and, uh, that's I mean, pretty cool to know there's a book about it. <laughs> yeah, and they talk about a lot of things that are very relevant to what we talk about on the show because it's still crystallography and material science. And it's just a fascinating book, so I highly recommend it. Um, I mean, that goes right into, you know, if you think about building in earthquake-prone areas versus non-earthquake-prone areas and what the construction actually has to be so that these buildings will not deform brittily and instead will sway when the earth sways right it's the it's tied back into geology very well well hopefully they don't deform ductily either uh (laughs) well that is true that would be that elastic deformation that we want (laughs) exactly Uh, but this also takes us really nicely into today's fun paper friday (laughs) yay because (laughs) this is a material science paper in a weird way right Yeah, and so I've been doing a lot of uh, programming and a lot of reading, getting ready for this test. And to do that, I've been listening to a lot of string quartet music, just because I like it and it's relaxing and it can play in the background. Mm -hmm. So I went and found a paper about stringed instruments. And in this case, it's about how the wood and the varnish that you put on the wood of something like a cello or a violin affects the vibromechanical properties and the sound. So I've played an instrument since I was fairly young, and I want you to read your comment about you never realized this was a thing. (laughs) Well, so I've always kind of chuckled at people that are saying like, oh, this different kind of varnish totally changed the sound of this instrument. Like, oh, please. Uh, but no, no it's, it's a thing. <laughs> it's a thing. Um, so, I mean, I play a woodwind, I play saxophone, so it's not 
like it's exactly that. But um, any high school kid that's ever had to play in marching band knows that in August, your instrument tunes a lot differently because it's really hot outside than it does during the playoffs in December, where it tunes a lot differently because it's freezing cold outside. (laughs) Um, And, you know, the difference between cheap and expensive instruments is also highly obvious, not just the skill of the player, but now we've put some physics behind this too. Yeah, exactly. So the idea is that this varnish coating actually uh, goes into the wood, maybe 40 to 80 microns Mm -hmm. deep, which is actually in much, I mean, quite a bit. That's a hair or two. Yeah. uh, Down into the wood. And, alters its mechanical properties, like how stiff it is, uh, what these elastic moduli are that we were just talking about, and that directly affects at what frequency it's going to resonate and how it's going to uh, project the sound. Which, I mean, different wood types, obviously, are going to do this as well. So I guess I could see where, you know, people would think that the varnish doesn't have as much to do with it as, say, the wood, but... In this um, experiment, you know, they use the same wood type, obviously, with a bunch of different varnishes uh, to perform the experiments. So independent of wood, the varnish itself matters, too. Uh, yes. And I will say I'll, I'll link a video in where they're talking about trying to figure out the, the famous sound Stradivari violin. <laughs> yeah. Um, <And> so... <laughs> not only is it the varnish, but there's a good chance that we have a hard time reproducing it because the trees that were harvested to make those grew in slightly different atmospheric conditions. Uh, that was a super interesting remark about that, too, because, you know, when you say you have a Stradivarius, it's a big deal. I mean, these violins sell for, so Stradivarius made violins in the 1700s and they sell for millions of dollars, like $10 million or something like that. Um, but I thought that was really neat to talk about how the climate was different and therefore you couldn't recreate it. That's kind of cool. Yeah. But so like you said, they, they did this in the lab and I also didn't know that they use things like egg whites and linseed oil to prime the wood before Mm -hmm. varnishing for a violin. Yeah. I didn't know that either. I knew the linseed oil. I didn't realize egg whites. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. And so they, they tried these, uh, a couple of laboratory mixes that they made for varnish, and then uh, a couple of mixes that were made by professional luthiers. Which is a cool word. (laughs) Yeah. I'm assuming Uh, that's that's how you say that. That's how I say it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. yeah, And they did this, of course, like you said, in a very controlled way. They put a drop on with a pipette and smeared it with this, uh, a laboratory spatula, basically. And then they would do uh, x-ray tomography and actually look and see how the varnish went in between the individual cells in the wood. Uh, These 3D tomography pictures are super cool in this paper, I will say. Yeah. (laughs) And then, so in addition to that, they measured uh, what the resonance was and what the quality factor was and what the internal friction was. And the way they did this, I thought was really cool. They put a metal plate on one end of the beam, the wooden beam, and then above it, they put an electromagnet. And with the electromagnet, they put an oscillating field on that made the metal plate move that induced a strain in the wood. And then they swept that through a bunch of different frequencies and found where it resonated. So that was pretty cool. That was a neat way to do it. I wouldn't have thought of putting a metal plate on and electromagnetically moving it. Yeah, no, not at all. I would think of making a violin and, you know, (laughs) actually doing it that way. So that's kind of (laughs) cool. And the other thing that was really cool in here 
a lot of rocks are anisotropic, which just means that their properties aren't the same in each direction mm-hmm. relative to the crystal axis. Wood is crazy anisotropic. And, okay, so yes, a long grain and a cross grain, you would expect different values of things like what's the speed of sound. Right. But along the grain, the speed of sound is 5.8 to 5.9 kilometers a second. Mm-hmm. Across the grain, it's 1.4. That's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's unbelievable. I wouldn't have said that at all. I mean, that's a factor of four roughly different. Yeah. And I mean, that's the speed of sound in water. That's 1,500 meters a second, the speed of sound in right. water. So it's slower than that. And then uh, close to 6,000 meters a second, I mean, that's, that's a pretty solid piece of granite. Yeah, that is... Um... Super interesting. So as you can tell, I really geeked out about this paper. Uh, Yes, you did. And I think it's very funny. (laughs) (laughs) It also ties in really nicely with what we've been talking about because there is a lot of stress on the top plate of the violin uh, because of the way the, the violin's built. And the strength of the wood is significantly different in these different along grain and across grain axes. So they actually, uh, you know, shape the top to redistribute the stress and make it mechanically more robust. That's impressive. That's impressive that that much science goes into, you know, the creation of something that you just don't imagine it making a difference, right? And I mean, since, what, the 1600s, too. Yeah, and I think a lot of this was, you know, trial and error at that point. I would Uh, imagine. But now... We've really begun to understand it. And putting the varnish on does dampen the resonance some. Uh, and they said that violin makers have actually said that before a violin is varnished, it does sound a lot more crisp. But, of course, you have to varnish it or humidity <laughs> yeah. just kills you and oil from your skin and everything else will just destroy it. Oh, right. Exactly. Um, so figure seven, it's got these sections of the x-ray tomography showing the cells in the woods taking up the varnish so like you said up to 100 microns is how far that varnish penetrates and if you think how how thick that wood is to begin with which isn't very thick i mean that's quite a significant amount to change the resonance yeah i mean think about putting epoxy on something right basically what you're doing Mm -hmm. yep exactly yeah so i thought this was a really cool paper and a neat way to tie Uh, Music, stress, strain, material properties, and x-ray tomography (laughs) all together. Uh, Yes. Uh, This is definitely really cool. And like I said, even if you don't really care about stress and strain in rocks, um, this is a really neat paper just to look at all their x-ray tomography. We do a lot of x-ray tomography on shales, so this was exciting for me to look at it on something. Not a rock. (laughs) Yeah, and there's also a lot of literature on this. I mean, there's a book, The Acoustics of Wood, uh, that's cited pretty extensively in here. There's a lot of studies on how wood resonates. And so in the uh, in the shortened Gizmodo article that sums this up, they talk a lot about doing this to try to recreate the sound of a Stradivarius violin today, really, and right. how it's really not possible just because like you said because of the wood differences but that's sort of a big driver because everyone is so enchanted with these stradivarius violins yeah and who knows maybe we can engineer a better way to do this coding 
<laughs> it sounds like a call for somebody's material science PhD. Uh, sure does. <laughs> well, if you have a fun paper that you would like to send us and hear us talk about, or any feedback for uh, anything that we've talked about, really, uh, we've really enjoyed reading what you've had to say so far and hope that you'll keep it coming. Uh, Shannon, how can they send that to us? Well, you can send that to us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And as always, we are on Twitter at Don't Panic Geo. John is at Geo underscore Lehman, and I'm at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.